Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome once again to History Dweebs. I am Tim, and today we have a kind of a somber. We say somber, Brandy. I would say this is kind of a serious thing here. Yeah, a serious topic that we're going to discuss. So we might not be our uh, normal jovial selves. Yes. Um, but before we get into the topic of Hugh Thompson, the hero of the Milai massacre. We're going to first introduce our panel, and joining me, as always, is the very talented, the very lovely, and very uh, good-hearted Brandy. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. That's so sweet. You are welcome. And odd. Well, uh, it's Thanksgiving, and I just want to say I'm thankful that you're in my life, Brandy. Oh, well, I appreciate that. I'm thankful that you are, too. Oh, well, good. But just you and not anybody else at this table. Just you. But speaking of... No, that just hurt. <laughs> speaking of which, I need to introduce um, our other panelists. Of course, a man of, um, of somewhat renown. Uh, a man who... Um, needs no introduction. Really needs no introduction, but we give him one every week anyway. <laughs> and he's, the, he's known as the baddest man in podcasting. The very distinguished Colonel Charles Beauregard Hawk Waters III, affectionately known as a Southern, 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 Southern gentleman. And I screwed that up. You're the, you're the most dangerous man in podcasting. That's what I've been called by some of our competitors. Competitive, yeah. yeah. So how are you You've today, Colonel? have never been called that. You ever. know, it is, uh, it, Timmy, we're sitting here on the end of November. Mm-hmm. And it's damn near 60 degrees outside. Love it. Yeah. Beautiful. Very nice. You know, if you're Period. from where we're from, yes. Cincinnati, that's it's a good, that's unusual. That's a good deal. Um, you take it whenever you take this weather anytime. Because last year we had like a bunch of snow. Yeah, it was miserable. Awful. Yeah, and this is a story we've been putting off doing this. We wanted to do this for Veterans Day, actually. Um, and you are, it, it, it's very somber, and it's very, and, and it, it kind of, it kind of, shows you the best and the worst of you know not American troops but just troops in general yeah it, it's um, a it's a difficult story to tell it's a story that is um, I guess still even controversial today and it's a story that um, like you said is it brings out the best and worst in people and so we hope that we don't, you know, piss anyone off, but this is a part of history, and we're, so, you know, we usually do the serial killers, and there's always a bad guy in that we can make fun of, 
But this one is kind of a serious topic, so we're going to treat it um, straight up and just uh, go for it. Well, and, and, and I, you know, the colonel, and I've told the story before, I, my brother-in-law, he served two years over in Vietnam. Yeah, we were talking about the Vietnam War. And, my dad was uh, in Vietnam. And your father yeah. was in Vietnam, right? And, and these guys were guys who... Uh, you know, no matter how no, you throw the politics of the whole war out out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get to there, you got got a lot of guys drafted. But what always surprised me about the Vietnam War was the controversy around it, um, and the number of guys who were signing up to go there. Mm-hmm. Who you know who who were saying because when when we had our last war, we had the Iraq War. You know, and and. People had just flown planes into our buildings in New York, right. mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people thought, well, you know, this is my duty. I need to go over and do this. And mm-hmm. you had World War II where you had Japan bombed and um, mm-hmm. something like that. Where it was very clear in, in Vietnam, hell, I, you know, a good percentage of the guys that were signing up to go there didn't even know where it was. They didn't even know what the whole thing was about. But they just felt like, well, their country's calling them, sure. so they should go there. Right. You know, and, and it's a—so to me, it's a very strange war in, in, in that sense, and, and you have to—whether you, you know, whatever you think about the war politically, we're, we're, there's no getting into that here. Um, but, I, but I've always been fascinated by that because my yeah, brother-in-law, his—like his, uh, I said, he served two years over there. He enlisted— to go to Vietnam mm-hmm. um, because his family had been military. I think my dad did too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, so these guys were not... Wasn't this um, the last use of the draft? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was last the last time we use used of the draft. draft, yeah. The draft. Um, yeah, draft ended, I believe, in 1973. <clears throat> but so. there was no tangible... Um, there was no tangible thing. There was nothing that you could put your... There wasn't an event. Yeah, there was nothing Yeah. That, Except, um, you know, a lot, many, I, I would say, you know, you, you have a small percentage, I believe, of every group that become policemen, soldiers, whatever. And that's a tiny, tiny percentage because they're nut jobs and they want to kill people. But you have another percentage who think, you know, they're, they're serving, they're serving country. Yeah, they want to serve. And as your father became a policeman afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, to, and he didn't become a policeman because he wanted to boss people around. He became a policeman because he, he, he liked bossing he you has, around. But, uh, but I mean, he, he has a, a, duty. a sense of duty. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and this story, uh, the, while we're beating around the bush about it, what happens in this story is uh, a lot of civilians get killed by U.S. troops. Well, you gave it away. Well, I mean, it, it's it's key to the story, and, and that's why we're dancing around it. We in no, mean, we in no way mean to uh, say anything negative about the troops, because actually the focus of our story is going to be someone who... Uh, showed a great deal of humanity and stepped in and was the hero of this, was a, a U.S. Um, a soldier. Well, not just humanity, just unbelievable bravery. And courage. Well, yeah. and the one thing you have to remember, too, is that because of the draft and, and because, you know, it's it's over on this in this foreign land that that didn't really have a um, an event for us to be there, you had people that were going over there that had no business being there. We're not military, you know. We're not well military trained. Sure. We're not. We're not equipped. 
people and I think that's quick. And I think that's this. one of the arguments against the military draft is that you have people who go to the military who are just not cut out to be in the military. They're just not equipped to do that. They may pass all of the mental and physical tests, but that does not mean that they are they are they are equipped to take another life. Right. And to, and then you know, and this is to and, and some of the things that Vietnam they had to. was a even a even a. a more complicated than that because you you would take these guys 18 19 years old they go take them through six ten weeks of basic training and then fly them over to asia and then you're basically on your own and you so try to survive a year if you survive a year then you can get rotated back stateside and then one day you're fighting in the jungles of vietnam the next day you're in san francisco on your way home there was no no uh, debriefing or no no right. transition. And an interesting thing about that is they said that they gave you more time when you got to Vietnam to adjust to the weather and the humidity than they gave you to adjust life coming back. Yeah, you know, you were just thrown back into it. You know, well, and there was all that public backlash when they got sure. back. So sure. all these people who didn't want to be there in the first place, mm-hmm. who were coming home, were. Being ostracized and yeah, or at least not getting a hero's yeah, welcome yeah. as they do today. Right, right. And I think, and, and what's really funny is, I think about my three boys when I think about this. Um, you know, and you all know my three boys. They're twenty-one, and the twins are twenty-one and eighteen. These were boys that were sitting over there. Yeah, you know, the average age, no way equipped. The average yeah. age of the um, uh, infantrymen in Vietnam, American infantrymen in Vietnam, was nineteen years old. So these are. And do you know yeah, why I, they give nineteen-year-olds? Because they're crazy. Because they they think they're indestructible. Yeah. Yeah. Because if a, a guy tells me to charge his hill and I know I'm going to get machine gun, I'm going to tell him to kiss my ass. Right. You, right. You can shoot me here, but they ain't going to shoot me running toward them. Mm-hmm. So, but at nineteen, but at nineteen, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, well, and right. yeah, you don't question things, yeah. you know, you don't question things. So, yeah, we don't. This does deal with a very, uh, it deals yes, with yes. one of the darkest parts. But you know, this happened in every war we've had, Timmy. Mm-hmm. It's happened. It's sure. happened in every yeah. war because when you put people in that kind of stressful situation, um, you're going to have certain a certain percentage of people are going to snap. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about that. Let's talk. Let me let, let's introduce our hero uh, because this is the guy we're going to focus on. Um, and his name was uh, Hugh Thompson Jr. Uh, and he was a uh, he was in the U.S. Army during Vietnam. He was a warrant officer in the 123rd Aviation Battalion. He flew a helicopter, and he played a role in ending this massacre that we're going to talk about, the My Lai massacre that occurred in March of 1968. Um, but let's t- first tell me to tell you a little bit about uh, Hugh Thompson. Hugh Thompson Jr. was born on April fifteenth, nineteen forty-three, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, his uh, parents, uh, his ancestry, can be traced all the way back to uh, British um, British colonies. Uh, his paternal grandmother was a full Cherokee Native American. Uh, and his ancestors were actually, some of his ancestors was victims of ethnic cleansing with the whole uh, uh, policies Andrew Jackson had toward the uh, American Indians and the Indian Removal Act and the, and the whole trail of tears and all that that went on. Um, Thompson graduated from Stone Mountain High School in Stone Mountain, Georgia on June 5, 1961. 
Following graduation, uh, Thompson enlisted in the United States Navy and served in a Navy mobile construction battalion in Georgia as a heavy equipment operator. He got married in 1963. He received an honorable discharge from the U.S. Navy uh, and returned back home to Georgia uh, to live a quiet life. And um, he got, like I say, got married to pa- pa- Palma ba- Bauman in 1963. So he returned home. And he was just having a quiet life there. Um, uh, he was studying to be a mortician uh, when the Vietnam War broke out in the uh, early 1964. Uh, or it began to escalate, and our, our role in it began to uh, escalate. Um, and Thompson, as you was mentioning, Chuck, earlier, Thompson had this, felt this obligation to return to military service. After all, he had served in the military in peacetime, he had these skills, and he thought these skills could be useful. So in 1966, he enlisted, and re-enlisted, or enlisted in the United States Army, he had been in the Navy, and he completed the warrant officer flight, um, flight program uh, training in Texas. And he became a helicopter pilot. Uh, and in late December of 1967, at the age of 25, so he was a little bit older than the ones, uh, you know, most of the soldiers who were just um, drafted out of high school. At the age of 25, Thompson was uh, ordered to Vietnam and assigned to uh, a unit there to serve uh, in the war in Southeast Asia. Now we get into, really this revolves around the My Lai Massacre. And this was in the Vietnam War. And it was a mass killing of between 350, 500 civilians, unarmed civilians in South Vietnam on March 16th, 1968. And um, when it happened is kind of relevant because this is when it was really starting to go bad for the Americans in 1968. Yeah, it's it after a terrible the, turn. the Tet Offensive <clears throat> occurred in February, that was a month prior to this. Yeah. So it was committed by the U.S. Army, um, soldiers from Company C, the 1st Battalion, and, and the victims included men, women, children, and infants. Some of the women were gang-raped, the bodies were mutilated, Now, after it was all said and done, 26 soldiers were charged with criminal offenses, but only Lieutenant William Calley Jr., he was the platoon leader in C Company, was convicted. He was found guilty of killing 22 villagers, and uh, he was originally given a life sentence but served only three and a half years under house arrest. So how this all comes about, Charlie Company... Arrived in South, uh, this battalion of Charlie Company, they arrived in South Vietnam in December 1967. Through their first three months in Vietnam, passed without any direct enemy contact. By mid March, the company suffered 28 casualties involved mines, involving mines or booby traps. And so all of a sudden, they're, 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 yeah, now they're starting, things are starting to get bad for them. Um, and and which is kind of you know not to get too off sidetracked, but my brother was there. My brother-in-law was there in '67, '68, and he uh, he was '67. He said he had almost no contact with the enemy, very little contact mm-hmm. with the enemy, and he signed up even though he enlisted. Um, he, he got a bonus for staying another year mm-hmm. in so the country. Mm-hmm. So he signed up for another year, and he said. Had he had any idea what he was signing up for, he would have rethought yeah. that. Um, 
because th- he said through 68 it was just constant, you know. But anyway, so they, uh, so on March 16th, 18th, um, T.F. Barker, he, he planned to engage and destroy the remnants of the 48th Viet Cong Local Force Battalion. And they were they were supposed to be hiding in the in the Son Mai, Son Mi, village. Mm-hmm. Now, before engagement, Colonel Orrin Henderson, he was the 11th Brigade Commander, urged his officers and to quote to go in there aggressively, close with the enemy and wipe them out for good. Now, in turn, Lieutenant Barker reported. Reportedly ordered the first battalion commanders to burn the houses, kill the livestock, destroy food supplies, and destroy the wells. I mean, and, and a lot of this is like we're seeing now <coughs> with ISIS. I mean, they, they the enemy at that point, the uh, Viet Cong, would just kind of uh, they they would go into these villages and kind of just hide in plain sight. Yeah, and be, yeah, and and that was the biggest problem. Is that you know the biggest problem that you. What we hear from Vietnam veterans is they didn't know who they were fighting. They rarely got to engage in them. I mean, what what was our case on was, Mm -hmm. you know, we we set all those Marines up there because we wanted to have one true enemy battle with them. Yeah, that's when they were fighting the North Vietnamese Army then. But with with the Viet Cong, you may be passing by a village that were quite friendly during the daytime, and as soon as it got dark... Yeah, your your snipers will come out or whatever. Yeah, and this was before we knew about the tunnels. I mean, you know, so they're walking around really kind of blind. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, they're supposed to just destroy everything. Now, on the eve of this attack, um, at the Charlie Company briefing, Captain Ernest Medina told his men that nearly all of the civilian residents of the hamlets and so me would have to be left would have, would have, I'm sorry, would have left for the market by 7 a.m. So all the, the civilians were Civilians be, are going to be, be gone. gone. Right. So anybody that's left are going to be Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizers. Did they just make that up? Like, did he just make it up? Well, I guess he had some intelligence yeah, that said that. It, um, it, obviously, it wasn't correct intelligence, but they were, well, yeah, you know. Yeah. The thought was that the civilians would be out, you know, they'd go to market certain points of the day and and at that point it was okay to go in and sweep through these villages for Viet Cong. Yeah, so now now he's asked, you know, does this include the killing of women and children? Those now the people that were there when the, he was asked this gave differing accounts of his Medina's response. Some, including platoon leaders, testified that the orders as they understood them were to kill all guerrilla and North Vietnamese combatants and in quotes here suspects including women and children as well as animals, and to burn the village and pollute the wells. Why kill the animals? Well, they well because they were Viet Cong. They were trying to just eliminate supplies. Yeah. I they, mean, they were just trying they, to make them as helpless as they could. It's like uh, Sherman burning down Atlanta. I get all that, but they're talking about how, you know, okay, the the villagers are gone. Right. Well, they believed that this was. They believed this that was a major Viet Cong hideout. Strong so they're just going to starve. So, so they're just going to start. They're going to eliminate it. Out. Yeah, they're going to eliminate it. All they're going to eliminate the entire thing, but they would look bad yeah. shooting civilians. Right. Okay. So, uh, so now he was also quoted as saying, "They're all VC. Now go and get them." And he was heard to reply to the question, "Who is my enemy?" By saying anybody that was running from us, hiding from us, 
or appears to be the enemy. If a man's running, shoot him. Sometimes even if a woman with a rifle's running, shoot her. Now, Kelly's um, trial, one defense witness um, one defense witness testified that he remember Medina instructing everyone him, everyone to destroy everything in the village that was walking, crawling, or growing. Yeah. So the whole point of this is uh, Lieutenant Callie, he uh, he gets he takes the fall for this, and not to say not to excuse what he did, but his his defense is he was following orders basically. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the Nazi defense mm-hmm. is what it was. Norberg defense, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it can be Donald Trump's defense. Might be, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, so anyway, you get Saturday morning, March sixteenth, seven thirty. There's about a hundred soldiers from Charlie Company, and they're led by Captain Medina. Now, following there's a short artillery and helicopter attack. Um, they land in these helicopters and spread along this coastal village of um, Somi. And it's just a little patchwork of settlements, rice paddies, irrigation ditches, and whatnot. And uh, now the largest among the hamlets, um, you have Mylai, Mylai, I'm sorry, Koli, Mike, and Tukong. Now, the GIs were not fired upon after landing. Still, they suspected that there were Viet Cong guerrillas hiding underground or in the huts. Confirming their suspicions, gunships retrieved several armed enemy in the vicinity of Malai. I keep getting that wrong to me. Milai. Milai. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, one weapon was retrieved from the site. That's all they Jeez. found in this place, one weapon. Now, the villagers, they're getting ready for market day. They didn't panic or run away or anything. Um, so they're, they were herded into the Hamlet's commons, this common area. Now, Harry Stanley, a machine gunner from Charlie Company, said that um, said during a U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Division inquiry that the killing started without warning. He said he first observed a member of the 1st Platoon strike a Vietnamese man with a bayonet. Then the same trooper pushed another villager into a well and threw a grenade into the well. Then he saw 15 or 20 people, mainly women and children, kneeling around a temple with burning incense. They were praying and crying. They were all killed by shots in the head. Now, a large group of approximately 70 to 80 villages uh, rounded up by the 1st Platoon in Zomlong. And they were then led to an irrigation ditch uh, to the east of the settlement. All of the 70 or 80, they were pushed into a ditch and then killed after repeated orders issued by Lieutenant William Calley, who was also shooting. Yeah, he was the commanding officer there at that point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Calley testified that he'd heard shooting and arrived at the scene and observed his men firing into a ditch with full Vietnamese people. And that he started shooting himself with an M16 at the distance so he just of five feet. Started firing off shots. Well, he said he arrived there. Now, other people testified that he started it. Um, but um, so anyway, over the next day, both companies are involved in burning and destruction of dwellings and and mistreatment in general of Vietnamese detainees. Now, while some of the soldiers at Charlie Company didn't participate in this massacre. None of them protested or complained later to the superiors. 
So now we're still on March 16th. Hugh Thompson and um, and then his, he's got his crew with him. He's in an observation helicopter, okay? Yeah, and his crew is Lawrence Colburn. Larry Colburn. He's a gunner. Mm-hmm. And Glenn Andretti. Yeah, he Andretti. was a crew chief. Mm-hmm. Now, they're ordered to go down and support this task force Barker's search and destroy ground operations. And the United States Military Intelligence Corps, to be a vehicle stronghold, however, the intelligence data was wrong as the area was made up just of farmers. I mean, Mm -hmm. the intelligence they had was wrong. Now, reconnaissance aircraft, including Thompson's crew, they flew over Somme but received no counterfire. So about 7.24 a.m., you know, this is still early in the morning, without validating intelligence reports... The, uh, the army started shelling so me, and they killed a lot of civilians there. Um, now, it was following this shelling, Company C, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, this is the one led by Medina, mm-hmm. um, moved into so me. And this is Thompson's words. Um, and, and this is Thompson's words back in, in 1994. He said, we kept flying back and forth, reconning in front, and in the rear, and we didn't take very long until we started noticing the large number of bodies everywhere. Everywhere we look, we see bodies. These were infants, two, three, four, five-year-olds, women, very old men, no draft-age people whatsoever. Now, Thompson and his crew at first thought artillery bombardment caused all the civilian deaths on the ground, became aware that Americans were murdering the Vietnamese villages after a wounded civilian they requested medical, evac- medical evacuation for was murdered right in front of them. Yeah, so they fly down. They, they fly down. Like- they see this woman hurt. They're going to medevac her. A soldier comes up and kills her. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Hugh Thompson's thinking, right, I mean, right immediately after this, you know, Thompson's looking at this thinking, what the fuck did I just yeah. see, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Right. So then immediately after he sees this, he sees that irrigation ditch where they led the 70 or 80 into him and saw all of Callie's victims. And, and Thompson then radios a message. Um, it says, it looks to me like there's an awful lot of unnecessary killing going. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. On down there, something ain't right about this. There's bodies everywhere. There's a ditch full of bodies that we saw. There's something wrong here. And Thompson spots a movement in the irrigation ditch. That indicates, you know, people are still alive in it, and um, he immediately landed to assist the victims. Callie approaches Thompson. This is where they have their encounter. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two exchanged a very uneasy, and it, it doesn't make sense. Maybe if you're in the military, it does. I don't know. But Thompson says to him, what's going on here, Lieutenant? And Callie says, this is my business. And Thompson says, what is this? Who are these people? And Callie says, just following orders. Thompson says, orders, whose orders? Callie starts just following Thompson. But these are human beings, unarmed civilians, sir. Callie, look, Thompson, this is my show. I'm in charge here. It ain't your concern. Thompson sarcastically, yeah, great job. Callie, you better get in that copter and mind your own business. Thompson, you haven't heard the last of this. Now, as Thompson speaking to Callie, Callie's subordinate, David Mitchell, fired into the irrigation ditch, killing, killing any civilians still moving. So Thompson sees this. And Thompson and his crew are still, I mean, they're just in disbelief yeah, and shock. shock. Right. And they go to the helicopter and start searching for civilians they can save. So they spot this group of women and children and old men <clears throat> in the northeast corner of the village. They're trying to get the hell out of there. And they're being... It, Advanced on by soldiers from the second platoon, Company C. So they're they're headed to kill them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so immediately realizing that these soldiers intend to murder these civilians, Thompson lands. Now think about this: he lands his helicopter between the ground unit and the villagers. Dude. So you got the villagers about two about two hundred yards away in this company. They're running like hell to get out of there. Mm-hmm. You got the soldiers. Coming, you know, to him, and he knows what they're going to do. Thompson just lands his helicopter down, and uh, he uh, turns to Colburn and and I get this name wrong, Andreata. Andreata. Um, yeah, Glenn Andreata. You know what? These two were not even talking about them. I mean, they were right there with him. Right. Right. Yeah. No, they're in the helicopter with him, and he turns to him and he says, uh, "If they attempt to kill any civilians, kill them." That's so what he, he said. So they turned their guns on their own troops. Colburn and Andretta, Andr- Andriata focused their guns on the second platoon. Thompson gets as many as the civilians as he can. He persuades them to follow him to a safer location and ensured their evacuation with the help of two uh, Huey pilots he was friends with. Um, a child, though Ba, was pulled from the irrigation ditch after um, failing to find it. They went to back to look for more survivors at that irrigation ditch, um, and Thompson's crew took that child to a nearby hospital. They took the child to the hospital. Thompson flew to the task force Barker headquarters and angrily, angrily reported the massacre. His report quickly reached, I'm sorry, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker. Um, the operations overall commander Barker immediately re- radioed the ground forces to cease the killings. After the helicopter refueled, Thompson's crew returned to the village, 
to ensure that no more civilians were being murdered and that the wounded were evacuated. I mean, just, I, just think what, how much courage that takes. Sure. To, to, you know, it, it's easy to sit back here 30 years later, 40 <clears> years <throat> later, and say he did the right thing. But in the fog of war, when all that's going on, you're turning your guns on your own, you know, your fellow soldiers, and saying this is going to stop now. I mean, uh, you know, it's like, like I said, it would be nice to think we all would do that, but it takes a lot of courage to do that. Well, when you look at it, the way the military set up, too, things, you know, a wrong roll of the dice for this guy, and he gets executed for treason. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. he's not, you know, it's not like he's not taking any risk doing this. Right. And it, and it, and you know, we, we talked about with the sisters, mm-hmm. um, the Papan. sisters, yeah, that we did, um, that kind of uh, paranoid thing, mm-hmm. you know, when people mm-hmm. are isolated and they um, they get to share paranoia. And, you know, 68 was a, was a bad time, and, and what you had was, you know, fuses erupting. Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden... Yeah, soldiers who saw and their soldiers friends, who were not necessarily were thinking... They, I, I guess they're just not necessarily thinking that they have been told that if they're in the village, mm-hmm. the Viet Cong, either either Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizers, they needed to have it eliminated, and you know, been done. Mm-hmm. And, well, and uh, again, these they had they had lost, you know, uh, they had lost uh, a lot of their friends in the week preceding this. Uh, they were going, uh, again, they were going in villages where they did not. You can't distinguish enemy from your friends. Yeah. And so everyone's on edge, and they've been given orders, you know, basically to kill whoever is there. And they do. And, uh, you know, but the orders themselves, uh, you know, it, it was a, the orders themselves were immoral. But Yeah. Uh, well, and weren't you, and you all are quite a bit older than me. So I, I'm you, not Brandy. sure, but I'm going. I, but weren't they always? Um, one of the complaints I, that I've heard a lot when I've watched things about this is that, you know, it wasn't. First of all, Vietnam's not a huge country, right? And so almost anywhere you went in Vietnam, you were on high alert all the time. Well, right, because you had the you had the uh, incursion of the Viet uh, Viet Cong as well, the guerrillas as well as the North Vietnamese Army. So right. we never knew. You never knew uh, what right. was going on. And so anywhere that you went in in Vietnam, if you were in country, oh, even you if were you're, on, yeah, even if you're as far south as Saigon, I mean, the, the in the Tet, during the Tet Offensive, the U.S. Embassy was attacked. So yeah. I mean, so I mean, you were always on high alert. Sure. You were always doing, it. and that and that wears on people after a while. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and and I think that's what that's what this led to. Although you know, you had, I, I guess you would have to have a perfect storm because you'd have to have. First of all, most most commanders are going to tell you um, when they say who is our enemy. Most of the commanders there are not going to say women and children. Right. You know. Right. I mean, yeah, and we don't want we don't want to totally excuse it. I mean, the five hundred over five hundred people, civilians are killed. So I mean, it. it, it well, and this wasn't this was an old culture. They would, didn't arm a lot of their women. There were yeah. very I mean, few women soldiers. And they we, talk, we talked children. about the the killings, but there was also rape going along. I mean, you know, it wasn't necessary. Yeah, I mean, they were they had become they had basically become 
a marauding, looting, pillaging, and raping army. I mean, they became Vikings. Yeah, and and they had, and and you know, in every war, that's that's happened. That in any war, you can find instances of U.S. troops doing that, or any troops, or any troops doing that. So you know, it's not like it's, you know, in in World War Two when when they were closing in on Berlin. You know, the Russians, just because they'd gone through Stalingrad and Leningrad, they were berserk, and they were... Right. People were terrified of being um, rescued. The people in the concentration camps were terrified of being rescued by the Russians mm-hmm. because they were just going crazy. Yeah. Well, people were trying to get to the uh, to the western part of the yeah. country to surrender to the but again, American you're killing, you're killing women and children, and this is an, an old culture where they didn't arm their women, um... For the most part, I mean, I'm sure there were yeah. Some of Viet Cong were Viet Cong were female. Some of yeah, them, were, yeah, but there weren't very many. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't arm their women. They, you know, when you have these little kids, they're not strapping bombs to them. They're mm-hmm. not. You know, these aren't. So, the fact that they were killing these women and children, and and it shows a, it shows it shows a break. It shows a break with reality. It shows a break from you know. Uh, someone snapped. Yeah. Someone snapped. Or or they but resist. It, or if they didn't, you got a bigger problem. And also shows what happens in groups. I mean, with, well, with yeah. the group think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Thompson went back and he made an official report of the killings, um, and was interviewed by Colonel Oren Henderson. He was the commander of the 11th Infantry Infantry Brigade. Brigade. Uh, which was actually the parent organization of the 20th Infantry. Um, concerned, senior division officials canceled similar planned operations. By well, that was a good idea. Yeah, good plan. Yeah. That's not working out Let's very well. Let's not do that again. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, like, is that oh, the whole armchair quarterback? Yeah. 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 Monday morning quarterback. Yeah. yeah. So um, they canceled all the planned operations by Task Force Barker against other villages in the province. Uh, possibly preventing the additional massacre of further hundreds, if not thousands, of Vietnamese civilians. Initially, commanders throughout the American chain of command were successful in covering up. Is it My Lai, the My Lai My massacre? Lai. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Thompson quickly received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his actions at My Lai. So, yeah, so they give him they give him a medal, and it's, okay, yeah, and go away. are we good? Are we good now? Yeah. Are we good? Yeah. yeah, they wanted to cover it up. Sure. Obviously, it was an embarrassment. It was it, it happened at a time, like I said, after the Tet Offensive, where, you know, this is a time when it's clear the, the, the war is losing support in, back home, uh, and uh, certainly this is not going to help matters. No. So he, he gets this medal, and the citation for the award fabricated events— um, for example, it praised Thompson for taking uh, the Vietnamese child to the hospital that had been caught in intense crossfire. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't also, crossfire. It was, just, it was, it was single was, fire. It was, uh, the only crossfire was there was a, guy, a soldier on the left and a soldier yeah. on the right. right. Yeah. Um, it also states that his sound judgment had greatly enhanced Vietnamese-American relations in the operational area. And Thompson just pitched it. He, he threw it away. He threw. He pitched it. He yeah. threw it away. Um, he continued to fly the observation missions and was hit by enemy fire a total of eight times. So he's still in the military mm-hmm. after all this, and he, you know, continues to really, you know, like all of them, risk his life. Sure. He goes down in a Huey a total of eight times. In four of those instances, the Huey was damaged bad enough that it was just it was totaled. Um, 
But in the last incident, his helicopter was brought down by enemy machine gun fire. Of course, it could have been friendly. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, And he broke his back in the resulting crash landing. And that ended his combat career in Vietnam. He was evacuated to a hospital in Japan and began the long road to rehabilitation. Um, Clearly and obviously and whatever, he carried psychological scars from his service in Vietnam forever, Mm -hmm. as most of those guys did. Um, When news of the massacre publicly broke, Thompson repeated his account to then-Colonel William Wilson and then-Lieutenant General William Pierce during their official Pentagon investigation in late 1969. Thompson was summoned to Washington, D.C., and he appeared before a special closed hearing of the House Armed Services Committee. There, this is what, hmm, there he was sharply criticized by congressmen, in particular Chairman Mendel Rivers, he was uh, from South Carolina, who were anxious to play down the allegations of a massacre by American troops. Rivers publicly stated that he felt Thompson was the only soldier at Milai who should be punished for turning his weapon on fellow American troops and tried unsuccessfully to have him court-martialed. Yeah, so... I mean, what a dick. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this is a very... It was a political hot button at the time, and and you know there you had a lot of people who supported the. And you, it was kind of this: you're either with us or against us mentality at the time. And uh, he became this. You know, I remember when Callie goes on trial. I know you probably get to this in a minute, but I remember as a kid there were petitions uh, going around oh, yeah. to get him pardoned. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and he eventually, whatever. Yeah, he... So, this guy... He was pardoned, yeah. Yeah, this poor guy, Thompson, he started getting death threats and hate mail and mutilated animals on his doorstep, um, and he recounts He becomes all of the this. bad guy. Yeah. yeah, and he recounts all of this. Actually, he did an um, interview with 60 Minutes in 2004, and... You know, just describe the public backlash that he was he was getting from this. On November 17, 1970, a court-martial in the United States charged 14 officers, including Major General Samuel W. Coster, the division's commanding officer, with suppressing information related to the incident. Most of the charges were later dropped. Uh, Brigade Commander Colonel Henderson was the only high-ranking commanding officer who stood trial on charges relating to the cover-up, and he was actually acquitted on December 17, 1971. In a separate trial, Captain Medina denied giving the orders that led to the massacre and was acquitted of all charges, effectively negating the prosecution's theory of command responsibility now referred to as the Medina Standard. So he did get that out of it. Yeah, he got his, got his name in the... His name is in the, in lives the, in infamy. Yeah. Um, in several months book. Several months after his acquittal, however, Medina admitted that he had suppressed evidence and had lied to Colonel Henderson about the number of civilian deaths. Eh, stand-up guy. Yeah. Most of the enlisted men who were involved in the, the events at Milai had already left military service. In the end, of the 26 men initially charged, Lieutenant Calley was the only one convicted. William Cowley was found guilty of murdering 22 unarmed South Vietnamese civilians in the My Lai Massacre. After several rejections, Cowley's original sentence of life in prison was turned into an order of house arrest, but after three years, Nixon, really? Tricky Nick. Yeah, reduced his sentence, reduced his sentence with a presidential pardon. See, how do 504 civilian 
you know, civilians, men, women, and children, raped and murdered, and really no one spends any time in jail. Nobody. Right. I mean, Callie, maybe, you know, Callie get, you know, slapped on the wrist. The, the person who suffered the most of this thing is Hugh Thompson. I mean, of, of the soldiers involved. Casualty of war. You know, we've had this, I mean, since we've had the Iraq war, we've had, I think, about three incidents. But they've all been typically um, one person. Mm-hmm. One per, you know, one person's in there, a couple household killed everybody in the household. You've had maybe 10 people killed. And, and again, when you put a bunch of 19-year-olds and give them weapons and put them under that kind of stress and strain for that, that length of time, one or two or some percentage is going to snap. We had World War II where, um, you know, if I, I don't forget the town where we had the— uh, where the Germans killed a lot of American POWs. Mm-hmm. And then the Americans came upon those Germans, and the Germans surrendered. Mm-hmm. And I believe there was... Some retribution there. Well, and they killed all the Germans. Right. They didn't let them surrender. They killed them all. And, right. and that was a big you know, scandal. Yeah. Uh, but again, you're talking there you're talking about Profession, you know, you're talking about soldiers. Yeah, you're talking about soldiers, about soldiers, soldiers killing soldiers. Yeah. This, this was, but I, but this was, yeah. To me, it's it's one of the more amazing stories. Everybody's heard about William Calley. You mm-hmm. know, that's that's the shame of it all. Is everybody's heard about William Calley? Nobody. How many people have heard of Hugh Thompson and or, or and, Glenn Andretta or Laura, right. Larry Colburn? Yeah. yeah, because those guys were, you know, they're heroes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're heroes, and I, you know. I, like you said, it's too bad we didn't have this ready for Veterans Day because when I think of what an American soldier should be, it's these guys. These guys are what really represents the best of this country. And uh, to, you know, as Brandy said, to see them, uh, you know, discredited and you know, threatened with uh, court-martial overdoing the right thing, that sends a message. That sends a message to other soldiers in the same situation. Either one, mind your own business— Mm-hmm. And keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Uh, or two, this is okay. This is okay to, you know, this action is okay. Well, and, you know, they're, set, they're killing the people they were sent there to protect. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Brandy, any final thoughts on Hugh Thompson or My Lai? Well, um, so after his Vietnam service, uh, Thompson was assigned to Fort Rucker, and he became an instructor pilot and later received a direct commission. It's amazing he'd stay in the service after after being dumped on like that. Well, um, his other military assignments included Fort Jackson, South Korea, Fort Ord, Fort Hood, and bases in Hawaii. So finally he got a cush job. Um, He retired from the Army in 1983, and then he became a helicopter pilot for the oil industry and operated in the Gulf of Mexico. In 1998, Thompson returned to the village of... Soon my soon me, mm-hmm. uh, where he met some of the individuals that he saved during the massacre, and with regret he told survivors, "I just wish our crew that day could have helped more people than we did." Yeah, it, um, because he saved. I mean, they literally saved you know probably another thousand well, lives. And so finally, so at the age age of sixty two, after extensive treatment for cancer, Thompson was removed from life support, and he died on January sixth, two thousand six at the Veterans Affair Medical Center in Pineville, Louisiana. 
um, Colburn actually came from Atlanta to be by his side, so they remained friends because I guess they got mm-hmm. you know. Um, but he was he was buried. Thompson was buried in Lafayette, Louisiana. He got full military honors, including a three volley salute and a helicopter flyover. On February eighth, Congressman Charles Bustani. Well, Uh, from Louisiana, made a statement in Congress honoring Thompson, stating that the United States had lost a true hero and the state of Louisiana had lost a devoted leader and dear friend. In 1998, exactly 30 years after the massacre, Thompson and two other members of his crew, Glenn Andretta and Lawrence Colburn, were awarded the Soldier's Medal. Um, Andretta by now had died, so his was posthumously. Um, the United States Army's highest award for bravery, not including or not involving direct contact with the enemy. Um, it was said at the ceremony that it was the ability to do the right thing, even at the risk of their own personal safety, that guided these soldiers to do what they did. The three set the standard for all soldiers to follow. Additionally, on March 10th of 1998, Senator Max Cleland. Uh, from Georgia entered a tribute to Thompson, Colburn, and Andretta into the record of the U.S. Senate. Cleland said that the three men were true examples of American patriotism at its finest. Yeah. And that says a lot coming from Cleland because he lost his legs in, uh, in Vietnam. He was Lieutenant Dan? Yeah, he actually did. He lost his And then had his... Uh had his uh, patriotism questioned when he... Yeah, he lost the election. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And, you know, I, and, I mean, there should be statues of you, Thompson, and Andretti, and Colbert. I mean, these, these should be household names. Well, and I, and I wonder, because I, I believe they got that soldier's medal. And, you know, I thought that what they should have got was the Medal of Honor. But I'm wondering, do you have to, uh, we're going to have to look that up. Do you have to be, think, is that something that you have to be engaged in enemy combat yeah, to get? Yeah, I think you that's have to be wounded. Yeah. Um, no, no, that's for but part. You have to be engaged but you have to be engaged in, in combat. And I don't think they were engaged combat. in enemy combat, no, no. technically. And well, I think enemy combat, per se, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so uh, they got it for the highest medal that you could receive other than yeah. Medal of Honor. But I don't think they would have been eligible for the Medal of Honor. But, but when you, yeah, you, but you, because it wasn't engaged with the enemy at the time. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. but you made a good point, and I, and somebody I think on our page made a good point by mention, saying, mention, you know, the other two people. Because while he said he landed the helicopter, he was a helicopter pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the gunner, Colburn, who had actually had to put the gun, turn the gun onto the troops. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So they had to. Yeah, it, it was, it was oh, definitely it was, encouraged by all yeah. three of yeah. them. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Okay, Brandy, any final thoughts on Hugh Thompson, Glenn Andretta, or Lawrence Coburn and the My Lai Massacre? No, I thank them for their service, and those are, that, those are what soldiers should be. That's what our soldiers should be doing is are helping, you know, civilians. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so. Yeah. Colonel, any final thoughts? Well, Timmy, I think what we have in this country often is a uh, you have an American myth and American reality. And sometimes the two cross over and they join mm-hmm. and they're what they what you want the country to be. And he is I like like the devil over here said, um, he is representative of that 
people meeting that line, that line mm-hmm. crossing over is what we Yeah, I hear you. I mean, you really have to have a, like a strong moral compass to be able to, to make that call. I mean, see, like I said, it's easy to make it 40 years later here talking about it, but at the time it's something else. So, All right, um, Brandy, where can people find us? Uh, they can find us on Facebook and iTunes. Leave us a review. Can they find us on the Netflix? Not yet. Uh, okay. And they Probably can never. also find us on Stitcher mm-hmm. and Libsyn. Yep. Check and us out. Just Google us. You we were everywhere. And sometimes be... on Twitter when Tim feels like it. Yeah, and maybe someday if we can ever get our act together on YouTube. Yeah. And we probably will put a YouTube channel together. Just It's just going to be audio. Um, different pictures of people. Uh, of the Colonel. Of Rudy. Mm-hmm. Of the Colonel. Of Rudy. Um, and, and it's... Uh, no Wang pictures. And, and I should Thank say, I, I will say, because, uh, you know, this was a very serious thing in the Colonel Field, a little sentimental. And Thanksgiving's tomorrow, and I'm, I'm thankful that I have uh, such wonderful co-workers here. Well, thank you, Colonel. Um, We're even the devil. Um, yeah, you he know, qualified that. Now you know. I know. You know that after Thanksgiving, I'm going to be back on no, your ass. Christmas but, after um, that. You know, well, the, you know the devil takes care of you. Well, the devil does take good care of the colonels. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone. We'll see you next time on History Dweeb. Good day. Bye. Good day. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.